Kristen, this may be one of the worst opening weekends of the year we have, but I think you and I are going to turn this straw into gold Ooh, on this podcast. Rumpelstiltskin. We're going to do a no, good job. No, not Rumpelstiltskin. Uh, yeah, no, Rip Van, no. No, is it Rumpelstiltskin? I think it's Rumpelstiltskin, oh, straw awesome. into gold. I yeah. think you're right. Oh. I think you're right. Excellent. Let's get into that barn and do it. We're, we're going we're gonna to do that. <laughs> we're going to spin this wheel. We've got the animated kids film Turbo. We have the over-the-hill action comedy Red 2, the zombie undead Supernatural action comedy, R.I.P.D., and a new horror film from the director of Saw called The Conjuring. I know what you're thinking, listeners. That sounds pretty bad. But no, but no, you're going to like this because we also have a very special guest that I think you're going to want to hear. But first, let's introduce ourselves. I'm Kristen Meinzer, producer for The Takeaway. And I'm Rafer Guzman, movie critic for Newsday, and this is Movie Date. Okay, let's talk. Let's talk Turbo, Kristen. This is the animated film about the snail who decides to become an Indy 500 race car driver. I don't get it. Because you get it I, because I get it. snails are slow, I I, hold but on race here. cars are fast. I better listen to this clip. I, I, I don't understand. Are you crazy? Ow! Yeah, I'm crazy! What made you think I was safe? I, 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 I don't know how the... Ow! Are you a car? No. Are you a car? No! Then stop driving like one! And get out there! Snail up, baby! Go, T-Boogie, no. go! Do you get it? Okay, so Samuel L. Jackson is yelling at a snail named Turbo. Turbo wants to go fast, but he's really slow because he's a snail, as you just said. Right. He's going to join the Indy 500. He's going to race. He's going to win. That's his goal in life. That's his goal. Did he I wants get, to be did fast. Did I get all that right? You got it. it. You got it. Oh, good. I got it because it seemed really complex and like a lot to grasp right there. <laughs> That's Ryan Reynolds plays Theo, who becomes Turbo. He's a snail who dreams of speed, but of course he lives, as you know how these animated comedies go, he lives in slow world with all the other snails and all the other snails in a garden. With the tomatoes. They work at, quote unquote, the plant. Uh, His older brother, Chet, is played by uh, Paul Giamatti, who is actually quite excellent. Um, You you couldn't have have picked a better better voice for the the pessimistic, dour older brother than than Paul Giamatti, you know, who's trying to tell Turbo, you can't can't go fast. You have to go slow. The the sooner you recognize recognize the the dull reality of your existence, the happier you'll be, he says. But of course, something magical happens to Turbo. He gains the power to break the 200 mile per hour mark and uh, decides he's going to enter the Indy 500 with the help of a taco truck driver. (laughs) Yes. And just you describing it just sounds so much better than the movie actually is. You did not like this movie. the movie is one of the worst movies I have ever ever seen. Not just one of the worst kids' movies, one of the worst movies I have ever seen. You really didn't like it that no, much? No, it is so awful. It's just, you know, and it might just be the difference between us gender-wise. You're a guy, maybe you just like, look, it's something going fast. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> look, here it goes. It's going fast again. Look, it just went faster. Like, I look at my niece and nephew and the difference between how they play. You give my nephew a stick and he'll just spend an hour hitting himself in the head with it or like hitting a wall with it. Just like throwing the stick, doing active things with the stick. And he is joyously just loving life with that stick. I feel Whereas my niece will take that stick 
and she'll give it personality. There'll be character. There'll be story. She'll hug the stick. She'll tell the stick that it's pretty. She'll do all sorts of things with the stick that's love, emotion, uh, heartbreak-driven, and that's what's lacking in this movie. I want this snail to be stick in my niece's hands, not stick in my nephew's hands. It is, I feel vaguely insulted by this analogy, but <laughs> but okay, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run with it. I I hear what you're saying, but but actually, uh, I have to say I went into this movie with low hopes because the premise just struck me as so dumb, um, and it just seemed so like such bad. a such a such a bottom of the barrel children's movies idea. You know, well, someone already did the rat who wants to become a chef, and someone already did the movie about the animals, the zoo animals who get stuck in the wild. What if we do the snail who wants to become really quick? But it just seemed bad. But I will tell you, um, I thought the first twenty. Possibly even the first 30 minutes were pretty rough going and uh, pretty dull. But by the end of it, it won me over. I mm-hmm. liked the race sequence. I thought the message was good. And it hammers home. I'd say two things. It hammers home the message as one of the Indy 500, the French-Canadian indie champ says, no dream is too big and no dreamer is too small, which is uh, played by Bill Hader. And I liked it. And I want to point out, Multi-racial cast set in Van Nuys, California. This film. I did like that. I did like the taco that. trucks driver yeah, Luis Guzman, totally Michael Pena. Your people, your they people are. were represented, Rafer. And Those I did are my like homes. that. I would say if there's anything that I was okay in this whole movie, the only thing I really even was able to give a little bit of my heart to, it was those Taco Truck brothers mm-hmm. and the yeah. relationship between them. Dos and Bros. Yes, yeah, so you have the parallel relationships between the brothers who are snails and the brothers who run the taco truck. Exactly. But the brothers who ran the taco truck were, to me, much more interesting and likable than the snail brothers. Mm. And overall, a very dude-heavy movie again. You know, Not enough kids' movies have enough female characters, in my opinion. And, yeah, they're, yeah, they're not and, a lot and of they female And they don't really characters. care about chicks with this movie. <laughs> no, they, no, they don't. They're You're much, right. They're pretty much saying, take that stick and hit yourself in the head with it. You're we right. We don't need to cradle that stick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I, so you say, you say bad date. Bad Date. Okay. Bad, I'm, bad, 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 bad date. I'm going to say pa- for for you and your kids, passable date. You will you will be you will not. This is not Wally. This is not The Incredibles. Um, you know, this is not even Cars Two. But it is perfectly acceptable, and I was I was okay with it. Um, have you seen Red? The first Red? No, I have not seen Red, and I have not seen Red Two. And so I, unfortunate. This is really unfortunate because you know I love the cast. I love Helen Mirren. Helen I love, Mirren. I love Bruce Willis. Love John Malkovich. But let's play a clip of the new Red movie. You ignored my messages. I am happy. You're desperate. I can make this work. Frank, you're playing house. Look, I'm retired. Okay, I'm happy. We are happy. Frank, Frank, you haven't killed anybody in months. You know what? It's not a bad thing, okay? That's a positive thing. That is Red 2. Rafer, tell me all about this complex movie. It sounds from that clip like Bruce Willis is in retirement now. That's true. Red is an acronym for retired, extremely dangerous. So uh, <laughs> the original, did you know that? Did you even know that? See, I don't think it, no, people even I know that. Even yes, I didn't know that. And I didn't realize that we have two acronym movies this That's week. Right. Wow. <laughs> That's right. Wow. Um, that is correct. Yes. Uh, Red 2 is the sequel to uh, Red, which came out in 2010. And I think um, that movie was really overlooked. Um, it, it became, it wound up being like a sleeper hit in late 2010. It made $200 million worldwide. Wow. And it was a fairly cheap movie to make. 
Um, and so uh, actually the guy who directed the first Red, Robert Schwenke, is the guy who directed R.I.P.D., which comes out this week. Uh, Red 2 has a different director. This is just – the shtick in Red was that you had these over-the-hill agents who were kind of – you know, in assisted living facilities and tending their gardens and cashing their pension checks. But they really, you know, they really wanted to get back out in the field and live the exciting life again. And lo and behold, something happens to Frank Moses, uh, which is Bruce Willis's character. And he has to get back in the field and join the fray. Uh, and of course, he drags along a sassy civilian uh, who he's in love with named um, Sarah, played by Mary Louise Parker. Oh, she's an RIPD and also. She, and she's an RIPD, oh exactly. God, so much crossover right. this week from movie to movie. And Ryan Reynolds, who was in he's Turbo, everywhere. is also in RIPD. It's, it's incredible. So um, – Red 2, the original Red, I actually thought was quite good and quite fun. Uh, it was just a very breezy, slightly black-humored, enjoyable action comedy. Wonderful cast. Helen Mirren is great. Brian Cox is in it. Uh, he's in this one as well. Anthony Hopkins joins the cast. Mm. Catherine Zeta-Jones is in the cast. Um, this one is not quite as fresh. Um, it's kind of interesting. They lose the old folks' jokes. In the original, there was a lot of jokes about you know Helen Mirren you know, arranging her flowers. And of course, hidden in the flowers is an enormous machine gun, you know. Uh, so there's a lot of this stuff like, you know, the, the, old, the old guys can still kick your ass kind of jokes. That's not here so much. And so in a way, the shtick is gone. It feels a little bit less fresh, a little bit less interesting. But when you think about it, now you also have just kind of a straight ahead, fun, snappy action comedy where everyone is like 60 or even close to 70 years old. And that's kind of interesting and cool. And I have to say, Helen Mirren, as you probably expect, she gets a little more action here. And she even gets one of those great slow-mode, double-fisted, oh, you know, pistols out it. the window love scene. It. And she's 67 years old and she pulls it off wow. wonderfully. She, she is looks, so fierce. She looks great. She looks great in the movie. She's a lot of fun. I, uh, you know, I think... I'm not sure I'd tell everyone, in, you know, out there in listener land to run out and go see Red 2. But I think if you're in the mood for kind of a fun, kind of late 70s, early 80s style, <laughs> brainless, funny action comedy film, this is a pretty good bet. Good date then. Good date. All right. I think I'm going to take myself out on that date. All that right. Sounds like an awesome date. But let's move to the other acronym movie now. <laughs> okay. <laughs> now that I know that they're all acronyms. R-I-P-D, which stands for Rest in peace department. Get it? Cute, Rest isn't it? In Cute. peace department. Here, here's a clip. Look at the ankles on that girl. <laughs> That's what you're into, ankles. That's what does it for you? In my day, women, they dress very conservatively. Mm, that makes you way less creepy. When exactly was your day? 1800s, buddy. Now, Kristen, here's the thing about this movie. You and I both saw this last night. Yes, we did. Now, usually, we sat there gazing off into the screen, <laughs> smiling. Usually when you see it, when, when, when a studio has a film coming out, they will screen the movie on a Monday or a Tuesday night before the release to give the critics time to uh, you know, write the review and have it published in Friday's paper. When, when it's not a very good movie, that screening usually happens on Wednesday to give you a little less time. Or Thursday. If it's on Thursday <laughs> night before the movie's coming out, so you have no time at all to write a review, you know generally that the film is pretty bad. That means they would rather have you not review it 
than to write the bad review they know is coming. But at least they had a press screening because you and That's I right. had to review movies before where they just don't know they, the press they screening. <laughs> nothing. Like, as in every single film Tyler Perry has ever released. Oh. He never screens his movies for critics uh, because why should he? So – Low hopes for RIPD, I think. Um, and as uh, a couple of trade a trade magazine reporters were telling me a while back, um, this really has bomb written all over it. Just if nothing else for the positioning, it's opening up against Red 2, also an action comedy with a much bigger cast. Um, and I think – and also opening up against a children's film. So this movie seems to be destined for complete bombsville. What did you think? Well, let me just say, first of all, I, I, I want to give a summary of this because yeah. you might not be able to tell what's going on from this movie, from the posters, from the trailers. No. But I'll, I'll just say it's just like the movie Ghost. You I would have, say it's just like Ghostbusters. Oh, Or like Men in Black. Interesting. Yes. So I think it's just like Ghost. You have – it is. You're right. You're right about that. A couple that's very much in love. They're young. They're beautiful. They love each other. They don't do things with pottery, but other than that, they just, they just <laughs> right. love each other. They're like making out in the morning. She's not wearing any pants. He loves her. You know, you know how it is. You know the way it is. You're young and in love. And then, unfortunately, there is a betrayal. He's dead suddenly. He needs to bring justice to this whole situation. But unlike Ghost, where he has the help of a fake fortune teller played by Whoopi Goldberg, Ghost, in this movie, he has the help of a long dead cowboy from the Wild West played by Jeff Bridges. And this uh, Wild West cowboy from the 1800s played by Jeff Bridges and Ryan Reynolds, who's the husband, the dead husband in this one, they uh, team up in the RIPD, the Rest in Peace Department, where it's kind of like a Justice League of police officers to take care of uh, they're like men in black they're like the men in black yeah they're chasing they're chasing down uh, what they call deados sort of people that I'm not quite clear on the concept people that should be dead but refuse to die or are still lingering around on earth Rayford don't get caught up in logic this (laughs) isn't about logic but they're wa- they're I, walking around. The, our, our two our two RIPD officers are walking around Earth trying to dispatch these deados, and of course they stumble upon a larger plot to open up a gateway from the other uh, the, the the nether world, which will unleash more dead people again, onto, don't the, get onto caught the world. Up in logic. Well, I'm just, sorry. Just, I'm let, just let's saying. just not get caught up in the logic because as soon as you start trying to get like things in order and be factual, it's just gonna. It's all going to fall just, apart. Yeah, yeah, just, you're right. Just you're right. don't focus on any of that stuff. But what did you think? I thought it was a great date. A great date? I thought it was a fun, fun, fun date. Yeah. No kidding. I totally enjoyed this date. Hold on. Did you not enjoy this date? I, I, I was pleasantly surprised. I was pleasantly well, that's surprised. because you went in with the low expectations because you're like, oh, Thursday night screening. This is going to suck. But you Well, know I just didn't know really what to expect. The, 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 you know, the, the undead premise seemed pretty overdone to me. I just feel like I've seen lots and lots of zombie kind of supernaturally action films and things lately. Like, I can't even think of what they've all been. But I mean, it just seemed like kind of a a done-to-death premise. Uh, Oh, I didn't even... No, you didn't! Boy, Um, it just seemed, you know, (laughs) overworn to me. But I have to say, going in and sitting through it, I found myself kind of getting into it and really enjoying it, mainly because of Jeff Bridges, who is really fun and sharp and smart. The movie has, I think, 
I think the bigger jokes, the bigger things that it thinks are funny are not that funny. I didn't think the, the, cha- the chase scenes were that funny. I didn't think the action scenes were that funny. But the little asides, the little funny ideas kind of pulls you through it. Uh, also, Kevin Bacon is the villain, always a great villain. Oh, Kevin, Bacon Kevin Bacon is, is wonderful. A he's wonderful. Um, and ultimately, I thought, you know, that was okay. I you know I, I I still have a feeling that movie's going to bomb, Aww. but it really was okay. It was it was really not a bad not a bad date. Mm, so not a bad date for you. Great date for me. I really enjoyed it. I'm glad. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I'm curious to hear what you're going to say about the next movie, The Conjuring. All right, it's nine eighteen. We're headed down into the cellar where the doors just opened on its own. Give us a sign that you want to communicate with us. Well, so this is the, <laughs> this is this is. I think you and I were both kind of agreeing uh, when we were on the takeaway today. We were agreeing that this is kind of a prequel to the Amityville Horror. Um, it's based on the true story, and I'm just. I personally am going to put that phrase in quotes. The quote true story quote of uh, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who are real life paranormal investigators, demonologists. I think they call themselves. Um, who investigated the Amityville Horror and, of course, a few years before that, they investigated a haunting in Rhode Island. And this is the story of that haunting. Um, Patrick Wilson and um, Vera Farmiga Farmiga play the Warrens and uh, Lily Taylor, of all people, and Ron Livingston from Office Space, of all people, play uh, the parents, uh, the other family, the family who's being haunted. And they have five daughters. Five daughters. old house and... Bad things happen. Well, the bad things that happen. I mean, we can we can go we can go on a list and tell me if you've never heard of any of these before. Cold spots, bad smells, clocks that keep stopping never at the exact same time. You never heard of any of that. How about, how about the that. rocking chair that no, keeps rocking no, in the no. no pictures falling off a wall for no reason. The ghost of the dead child that's in the background. Oh, waking up with bruises all over yourself. You haven't heard of this. How about feeling like somebody's pulling your legs while you're in bed <laughs> and possibly is under your bed? Right, and then never pulling, pulling you by your hair across the room. No. Oh, no, don't know that one. Yeah, okay. Never heard of that. Or so, um, possibly seeing things like uh, well, you've definitely dead never bodies seen... hanging from trees. Never <laughs> right. seen that. Oh, or I, you know, children How about an exorcism? Talking... Oh, I've never heard of that. <laughs> an exorcism. I've never heard of children talking to imaginary friends. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, yeah. Sometimes music... you look in a mirror and you see something in the mirror that might not be able to be seen elsewhere. And the music box, the creepy doll. We could yeah. go Some, on. Sometimes just they throw it in for good measure that... You know, that monkey that has the symbols yes. that they clap together? Just, yeah. <laughs> Let's just throw that in there, too. That was actually kind of funny. Um, <laughs> that, that, the conjuring, so here, there's the conjuring. Um, the, the only, the, I think the only horror film I didn't see in here, the only few horror films I think that were not in here, The Birds is in this movie. They're, the, <laughs> Hitchcock's The Birds is in this movie. The only horror film I didn't see was The Shining Cat People and Friday the Thirteenth. Those are the I did not see any of those movies in this movie. But every other horror film that's ever been made since ever. since about 1950 is in this film. However, it kind of works, and I think the main reason it does is for James Wan, the director um, who did Saw. His he hasn't directed much since doing Saw. He's mostly been the executive producer of that franchise, but. 
which is god awful. They're all they're all they're <laughs> I all. You like the Saw movie? Oh, I like the first Saw, but I mean, almost everything since has been kind of shockingly bad, like shockingly bad. And James Wan's last film, Insidious, also like you, like you just you couldn't it didn't it didn't look like it was made by someone who actually knew how to make a movie. It was horrible. This film. Really expertly done, really clever, smart direction. Um, there's very little gore in it. Most of the scares are done with just good camera angles, reaction shots, people freaking out. I think it builds its tension really well. Really great cast. The um, cast is outstanding. Yeah, great. I, mean, I, I would say, for me personally, the cast is what made the movie. For yeah, me. I, I I agree. I think I think they they're really they're really one of the big saving graces of the movie. Um, the rest of it is just. It's 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 complete nonsense, but you kind of don't really realize until you're walking out like, oh, I just got completely ripped off. I I was having such a good time that I didn't realize that I just paid all this money for not one single original idea. But that's kind of okay. It works. It's a totally all right fright film. You're 80 movies in one. That's that's right. 80 movies for the price of one. It's a Turner Classic Movie movie horror horror marathon (laughs) in the space of like an hour, 50 minutes. I Uh, I, I do have to put out a warning to listeners, though. This may be a little too scary. Oh, it's not too scary. Yes, it scary. might be too scary. You're, you are easily scared, Kristen. I was so scared during this movie. I got a little bit scared. Really? And by a little bit, I mean I was wildly screaming through most of it. And people behind me, of course, were getting upset. Like, who's that hysterical woman? Get her out of this theater. I can't hear anything the characters are saying because she just keeps screaming and flailing around in her you, seat. You got scared during Woman in Black, that Daniel, oh, that Daniel God, that, Radcliffe oh, movie. Oh, Harry Potter. So scary. <laughs> it's it not so scary. scary. This I, one is this I, one is passably scary. This one has some very good, some good jumps, some good jolts in it for sure. Yes, it's a little too scary. It's Interesting. A little too, don't go into the wardrobe. So don't go into the armoire. <laughs> uh, or don't the or the or the panel that leads into the hidden basement. Don't yeah. go. Don't go you in there. You know what either. you should really do? Just go down there at night and only have a book of matches <laughs> with you. Just do that. Right. Just go down there. Nothing and... will pop into my pop in front of my face while I light this match. Will no, it? let's put all five of these children in very separate bedrooms, and then <laughs> yeah, particularly the one that sleepwalks. Yeah. Okay. Well, I I have to say, you know, decent date. Totally decent date. All right. And I would, you? I would say it was an overly scary date, but that would probably be a good date for lots of people, right? <laughs> okay. So yes, that could I be. Mean, if you want, if you want your sweetheart to jump into your arms and to comfort her, this this is going to be a good date for you. All right. Okay. Good. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, so there's there's your lousy opening weekend review. Uh, but but don't turn off your iPod yet. Uh, we are still going to come back with a special guest, and we will do trivia. This new documentary, Rafer, you know all about how excited I've been about it. Yes, I do. And I'm glad that we're uh, getting a chance to discuss this. Yeah, it's called The Act of Killing. And ever since I first heard about it, I think I first heard buzz about it about a year ago or maybe nine months ago. And this is a documentary unlike anything else I think I've ever seen or heard of. Uh, So what happens in this film is in Indonesia in the mid-1960s, the military overthrew the government, 
And when they did that, they enlisted the help of some small-time gangsters to become pretty much military killers to eliminate about a million people from the population, torture them, kill them because they were suspected communists, because they were suspected of being intellectuals, because they were ethnic Chinese. And this movie, The Act of Killing, looks back at these kind of small-time gangsters who became killers, these small-time gangsters who also happened to be film buffs, and these small-time gangsters who take great pride in what they did. They're national heroes in some ways. They're not treated like war criminals. Nobody looks at them like, oh, you were Nazis, you were awful. And it shows how they're celebrated in some ways, and it shows how they celebrate themselves, but it also shows them kind of reckoning with that because the filmmaker, the brilliant, brilliant filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer, encourages them to actually reenact how they killed people. In a, in a, in a, in a Hollywood way, in as, as much of a Hollywood way as they can, with, with full makeup, costumes, scene setting, backdrops, the whole bit, uh, kind of to um, put, you know, to give them a chance to almost reenact those killings the way they thought of them in their own minds, the way they thought of them as a kind of Hollywood-style spectacle. Yeah, and being big film buffs, it's in in these genres that they just loved, like Western-style and gangster-style. and Musical. Uh, musical. with full, Strangely enough. Uh, the way I'm explaining it, I'm making it sound like it's Disneyland, but it's actually kind of a cross between Disneyland and just full-on horrific, shocking... Sure. I, I, I can't even explain how shocking some of this movie is. Sure. It's re, it's real killers reenacting their actual killings. Yes. Um, and so, it's, you know, which makes the, the title very clever, The Act of Killing. Um, it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I, I agree with you. It is, um, it is really... It's, it's a, pretty, a pretty intense documentary. Yeah. And we're so lucky today because I've been dying to talk with the filmmaker Joshua Oppenheimer ever since I first heard about this movie. And he has kindly come into studio to talk with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Should we just start with Anwar, who's the main character? Yeah, on, Anwar Congo. Um, yeah, uh, he's he's essentially your your protagonist in a way. He's the guy you follow around um, the most. Um, very charismatic, very friendly guy. Um, really, uh, in some ways, um, a lot of fun to hang out with. Um, but tell me about how you how you met him and how you and he uh, came up with this idea to reenact uh, these murders. Well. Anwar was, in fact, the 41st perpetrator I filmed. I had been working my way across the North Sumatran plantation belt with my collaborator, Christine Sin, working my way up the chain of command to the city of Medan, where we made the act of killing. It's the largest city in North Sumatra, the third largest city in, in Indonesia. And we were we, we had been asked by a community of survivors and the human rights community in Jakarta to make a film that exposes the nature of what happened in 1965, but also the, the, the killings, the torture, the abuse, but also a whole regime of fear, corruption, impunity, thuggery that has been in place and based upon the celebration of what happened as something heroic. And as we worked our way across the region meeting perpetrator after perpetrator, we were astonished to find that everybody was boastful. Everybody was open about what they did. Everybody was eager to tell us how they had killed often in front of their grandchildren, their wives, their children. And then they would invite us typically to the places where they killed. We would say yes, because these were facts of world historical importance. Of course. There they would launch into these kind of 
spontaneous reenactments of what they'd done or demonstrations. And gradually our question shifted from what happened in 1965 to what's happening now that these men are boastful. Why are they boasting? For, for whom are they boasting? How do they, uh, are they, are they uh, trying to convince themselves that what they did was right? Are they trying to impose that view on the rest of their society? Are they trying to terrify, terrorize their neighbors and their society into submission? Are they trying out of vanity to see themselves as heroes? Is it all of these things? And so in pursuit of answers to those questions, by the time we met Anwar, we realized, let them show us what they want to show us as a way of understanding how these men see themselves and see what they've done. How – this is – this the first thing I thought of when I first began watching the film in the, in the first several minutes um, was the situation in Cambodia, uh, the Khmer Rouge. And the people that are the 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 fact that that many members of the you know the, the death squads are still there in the country living amongst relatives and families and descendants of their victims in that country it's all very hush hush no one ever talks about it people don't want to admit it right it seems like that's sort of well, well that's in part because the Khmer Rouge have been formally removed from power and there is in fact there are in fact tribunals so there's costs to brag yes. about what you've done. And that's – there are in fact also some films where we see Khmer Rouge perpetrators meeting survivors and there is a kind of sober dialogue for lack yeah. of a better wor uh, word, even if it's not necessarily a productive dialogue. The, 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 normally when we see perpetrators in documentary, they deny what they've done or else they apologize for it. Whether or not sincerely, that's another question. Um, that's because somehow there's been a change of regime by the time right. we meet them. They've been approached as perpetrators. In Indonesia, these men are still very much in power and have been encouraged by the state to go and boast about what they've done so that somehow, I guess, they become feared proxies of the regime. It, when we were first encountering these situations, it felt as though we had walked into Nazi Germany 40 years after the Holocaust and there was an official history which said nothing about the killings. But th these aging SS officers were somehow encouraged to go back to their lives, back to their communities, back to their families, right. and tell talk of their glory days and boast. So that's that's really the that it's that sort of extraordinary situation that the film tries to address with its and the, the, the if you like the unusual method of the film is a response to that openness. It's an attempt to try and understand the nature of the perpetrator's openness. Now, you you just compared them to Nazis, and I did also earlier. But as such, we we see Nazis in the U.S. as the ultimate villains in every movie in our culture. How did you talk with Anwar and his friends and not treat them as just villains? How did, how did you get your mind around that? You know, it, it was actually easy. If you approach somebody with the time that it takes to approach somebody as a human being, I suppose, I don't know if both of you would do this, but if you sat down and met somebody, if you, if you met somebody who you were told had killed a thousand people, and you approach them as a person and you are planning to spend real time with them, and you want to understand them as a person, you would do so. You would approach them as an open, you would approach them with an openness. It's one thing if you come as a journalist and you're going to spend half an hour with them and you're basically trying to gather evidence so that you can, in a piece you're writing, condemn them. It's another thing if you say, I want to understand how human beings do this to each other. What 
you know, I think it's it's a great shame that in our storytelling we divide the world into good guys and bad guys. In fact, good guys and bad guys only exist in movies, in movies. stories. <laughs> yeah. In reality, yeah. every act of evil in our history has been committed by human beings like us. And we have very few movies about how we commit evil, why we commit evil, the effects of evil on us. And if we take seriously the slogan, the, the, the saying of never again, not in the sense of never again to us, but never again to human beings anywhere ever, period. We have to look at the re we have to unflinchingly look at the reality of what happens, namely that human beings kill human beings. And uh, we have to separate the task of understanding from the, the task of justice. It is not my job as a filmmaker to go in as a judge and deliver justice, to deliver, to deliver a verdict, even if the film does deliver that somehow. It's the task of the filmmaker to come and try and grapple with the questions of how and why this happens. How did you feel, um, I, I'm assuming, correct me if I'm wrong, that you it, you were responsible for for funding making putting together the production is that is that correct for the for for the for the gangsters as they call themselves yes um they they're never making a separate film they're making reenactments for the act of killing yes and so yes we 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 of course paid for the reenactments because it it is the production of of the act of killing um and did you have any qualms about that did that trouble you ever no, because not for, for for two reasons, I suppose. Not for a second did I forget my condemnation of the perpetrator's crimes. Mm -hmm. And I always remembered that our primary ethical, our, our number one ethical commitment here was to expose what happened and a regime of corruption and impunity on behalf of survivors and the Indonesian human rights community who said, please make this film, however difficult, however long it takes, however... Uh, even dangerous it might be, we need a film in Indonesia for Indonesians that work, that that exposes the nature of this re regime, which is something everybody knows. Yeah. So it, we, we need a film that comes to Indonesia like the child in the emperor's new clothes, pointing at the king and saying, look, the king is naked, and everybody knows it. And if you don't, it's probably because you've been afraid to say it for so long that you've forgotten it. But you know it. And so in that sense, the film... Because we knew that was our task, and because every single reenactment, if you like, is another is another uh, allegory or uh -huh. expose of impunity. You you can't propose and shoot a uh, for Anwar can't and his friends can't propose a, a cowboy scene, a, a western about killing, and not be in denial of what it means. Of what of, of the moral meaning of this? So every fiction scene is somehow an instance of impunity. Yes, it's it's a sign of flaunting and boasting because they're still in power, and it's somehow related to the performance of power. So we knew that if we put those reenactments under a microscope, we could see somehow how power is perpetuated. Now, what I don't think I understood so clearly while I was shooting is that. But it is, I think, why I lingered on Anwar. It's that the what was motivating him and his friends, especially motivating him, to embellish, to make each, to propose ever more surreal, strange, dreamlike reenactments, was his conscience. 
The yes. fact that he's trying to run, he would we, we would shoot a he's scene. He's the only one that seem, that appears to have any sense of guilt. And I think that's because he's the main character with whom, you know, with, with whom I took this journey in the sense that he would, we would shoot a scene to specific, to, he would decide how it should be. We'd shoot it, we'd play it back for him, and he would decide where to go next. And every single scene that he would watch, um, I think, left him disturbed. Yes, clearly. And you, he you, watches it, he's disturbed, and then instead of articulating why he's disturbed, instead of saying what's wrong, he proposes another embellishment. And the reason for that, of course, is that he's to say what's wrong would be to say what I did was wrong. And he's never been forced to do that. He's been, because he's still in power. So with each successive scene, he proposes, instead of saying what the real problem is, namely that what he did was wrong, he proposes a change of costume, a change yeah. of genre, yeah. a change of script. And that somehow, that somehow, in hindsight, it becomes inevitable. It's inevitable that, it was inevitable, that these fictional reenactments become the prism, if you like, through yeah. which Anwar finally is forced to see his his the true horror of what he's done. Joshua, we loved having you here, and I just have to highly recommend that all of our listeners check this movie out if if they can, if it comes to their area. Please see this movie. It's unlike anything else out there, and we just so appreciate your coming into studio to talk with us about it today, Joshua. Thank you so much. Well, Rafer, we've made it through another supersized podcast. Yes. But before we go, we always end with trivia. So first of all, let's remind everybody of last week's trivia. Last week, in honor of that great movie, which you just loved, Pacific Rim. Pacific Rim. You just loved Pacific Rim. You loved it so much. God. I adored it right out of my memory. Uh, well, Pacific Rim is about giant robots, and we asked a robot trivia question. We played a clip of a movie that not everybody thinks of as a robot movie, and here is the clip. I've never been much of a joiner, I'm afraid. I guess it's because I've just been so busy, what with baking and all that. This isn't any kind of a lifelong commitment we're after. We just want to see if there's any interest for some kind of activities in Stepford, that's all. Well, there isn't any interest here, Joanna. I know I shouldn't say this, but I just love my brownies. We asked you to identify that robot movie, and here's the right answer. Hi, Christian Raper. This is Baird from Oak Park, Illinois. The answer for this week's trivia question, good question, because I didn't recognize the quote, but the only possible robot movie that has anything to do with brownies besides the alternate version of Pacific Rim would have to be The Stepford Wise. And you have your choice of the original or the remake, but uh, not a good way to turn out. Oh, by the way, for those who haven't seen Stepford Wives, spoiler, thank you. Hey, also, another great thing, whoever picks the music for your intros and outros does a great job. I always enjoy it. Sometimes it's songs I've never heard of, but they always make a great connection, and, and kudos to the producer who picked that music. Keep doing a great job, folks. I can't wait to next week's show. Bye-bye. Awesome work. Big up, Illinois. Yeah, representing Illinois. My, my old Midwest brother, that's who you are. And <laughs> we, we did get a lot of people who called and wrote in and who did point out that the clip, I, I wasn't thinking things through when I edited this, actually has the word Stepford in it. Yes. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I also do, I, you know, I, know, I, know what you're, I, I know that it's sort of a spoiler 
to say it's a robot movie, but I don't know. It's a pretty famous old movie. Don't you? Th- I mean, I don't know. You think everyone also, knows it's a robot movie? Also, Rosebud is a sled. On Rafer! Rafer! Oh, my God. You didn't just do that. Oh, you're awful, Rafer. Awful. But um, one last thing. Thank you, by the way, for the yes, props on the music you. because I cannot tell you how often I'm putting this together and I wonder, does anyone even notice this music I oh, added Christian, into this thing? I think I, I, lo- I love – I mean, that's – that's the only reason I listen to the podcast. I don't listen to hear us talk again. I listen to see what musical choices you've made. So that's why I keep tuning back in. Uh, well, thank you for even noticing the music. And thank you for the right answer. We love it when you guys call in with the trivia answers. And what is this week's trivia question? Well, uh, this week we, count, we counted off um, of, the, of the 70 to 80 horror films that are mentioned in uh, The Conjuring. Um, we, uh, we're going to, we're going to throw out one more. Uh, I, I know listen, uh, listeners, you have not seen The Conjuring yet probably. Um, and perhaps, but perhaps you've seen Insidious, which also steals from this particular horror movie. Here's a clip. Sweetie, remember last night? Do you remember when you woke up and you said yeah. you're here? Uh-huh. Well, who did you mean? Who's here? TV people. If you know that famous haunted house movie... That's been ripped off in both The Conjuring and Insidious and probably many other films as well. Give us a call. Name that movie. 5717 Movies. And as always, you can log on to Facebook.com slash Movie Date Podcast with trivia answers, with questions, with um, your own reviews, with your own reviews, with anything you want. We love hearing from you.